create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Don't follow leaders, watch the park and meters. Oh yes, another flash of brilliance from Bob Dylan's mind. Those words are from the song Subterranean Homesick Blues. Should you follow leaders? If so, which ones? And what is a leader anyway? Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. We're fortunate that our host, Audible, is enriching lives. They are offering you, our storytellers, a free audiobook download of your choice, plus a one-month free trial of all of Audible service, and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you. So keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Today's guest is a successful author, speaker, and trusted authority in the field of leadership. For 20 years, he has led international Nonprofit World Venture, serving in over 65 countries. He speaks and writes on practical leadership principles from the real world, not the classroom. He's written 10 books, including his bestseller, The Top 10 Mistakes Leaders Make. His books have been translated into over 20 foreign languages. Today, he serves as president of HD Leaders and is chief leadership guru on the Leadership Answer Man podcast. His latest book, The Top 10 Ways to Be a Great Leader, is a must-read. There are 10 chapters, and there are 10 letters in the word leadership. Each chapter begins with a letter from that word, and it represents an important leadership principle, like chapter one, L is for listen and learn. I am honored and excited to introduce Hans Finzel to our show. Hans, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you so much. It's great to be on the show with you today. I appreciate you having me. This is going to be fun. Yes, it is. Let's have some fun. As yes. a matter of fact... I just heard a sound which reminded me that I am going to silent my phone. I don't want it ringing. Yes, I just muted mine, too. Okay, here we go. So let's start with where you were born, Hans. Well, I was born and raised in Huntsville, Alabama. Huntsville, Alabama. 
Yeah, you know anything about little sleepy Huntsville, Alabama? No, nothing at all. Well, it's where the U.S. space program began. Uh, there were a group of German rocket scientists and engineers that came to America right after World War II, kind of a brain trust led by a gentleman by the name of Werner von Braun. And uh, they ended up settling in Huntsville. That's where the Redstone Arsenal was and uh, the um, NASA actually began in 1960 in Huntsville. So that's where the whole Apollo program was engineered from. A lot of people mm. don't know that. They think it's all about Houston, but uh, Houston didn't come along until years later. So, yeah, so my dad was one of those German rocket scientists. That's how a guy with the name Hans Finzel <laughs> is from Huntsville, Alabama. Well, that's interesting indeed. I know I didn't know any of that. Uh, now I know why in our communication you asked me if I knew who Werner von Braun was. Yeah, since you were asking me about a Werner somebody. <laughs> Werner, Werner, Werner Dankwort. Yeah, 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 the guy that played pool every day. No. Now, the guy who played pool every day is uh, from the book Billiards at Half Past Nine, which uh, it's a fictional character. Okay, I thought it was the same guy. No, because Werner Dankwort is, um, was, I mean, he's passed away, but he was um, a very interesting, he was the first German ambassador to Canada. I'm very close friends with one of his sons. And uh, his dad has, I mean, Verna has quite an interesting past. Um, uh, I didn't intend to get into this, but I think the, <laughs> the uh, my storytellers will be interested in this little anecdote that this man who was in the German high command and was not... Uh, a fan of Hitler, was instrumental in stopping Hitler from invading Sweden. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. A among other things. So, do you come from a big family? Not well, five people. Is that big? I don't know. I have a brother and a sister, so I, I wouldn't say it's a super big family. Since I'm an only child, that's a huge family. Okay. <laughs> so, who would you say influenced you the most when you were growing up? You know, probably my Boy Scout leaders. Uh, I was a Boy Scout, and um, now that I look back, I had some really great people who uh, kind of mentored me along in the Scouts. I never had a close relationship with my own father, and I wasn't interested in school, so I couldn't really point to any teachers. So probably my Boy Scout leaders were my, uh, and that's where I first started exhibiting uh, leadership is uh, in in the Boy Scouts. Um, so yeah, I would say my Boy Scout leaders. You know what's interesting? Uh, in the past two days, yesterday I interviewed a gentleman, and he said that his strongest influence came from his various basketball coaches. And what I find interesting is that two days in a row, there have been people whose main influence was not from the family. That's, you know, it's um, certainly valid. It's just that it's interesting that it was two back to back. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, my not father was your typical um, German father. Um, if any of you are Germans out there and you take offense at this, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but the, the old school German dad basically provided for the family and the mother raised the kids. And that really was the paradigm in our family. 
What did he do? What kind of work? He was in rockets. He he was a rocket scientist. He helped develop the 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 Mercury, the Gemini, and the Apollo program that put us on the moon. So he was a scientist, an engineer, very involved in engineering the space race, um, worked for the government, for NASA his whole career. So he, he had a really great job. Never talked about his work at home ever. So uh, he just didn't communicate much at all, really. So my influences were definitely from outside the home. You know, it sounds like he was probably a, a brilliant man who lived more in his head than his heart. Well, you know, he was an only child like you are. And he was an, uh, his dad died when he was six years old. And looking back, I think, I don't think he really knew how to be a dad. You know, he, um, he didn't have a father. He uh, grew up as an only child. So, yeah, I just think it, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't blame him for not being a good dad, but I just don't think he knew how. Hmm. And and I've raised four children. I know this is sort of off topic, but so when my kids came along, man, I was like obsessed about being a great father. And to me, the most important role in my life is my husband and father and grandfather, wow. uh, because you know I just to me, um, children are a precious gift from God, and I I have been a very involved father even now that my kids are grown and getting married and having their own kids uh, i love being a dad beautiful that's i can hear i can hear it in your voice the uh, uh the genuine joy that you feel from that that's great now when you were a boy did you have a a little boy's dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> i never ever gave it a thought about what i would do i was a I just played hard and got in a lot of trouble and lived in the moment. It's funny because as an adult, I'm obsessed about the future and I'm a planner and uh, a futurist. But as a kid, never gave it a thought. I cannot remember ever thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just was enjoying life as a kid. Hmm. In fact, when I went away to college, uh, I went to the University of Alabama, and I only went there because my sister was there, kind of followed my sister, and with no ambition about what I would do. I just knew my family said, hey, when you finish high school, you have to go to college. You know, you just made me think of a, uh, a quote I heard this morning, which apparently they attribute to Mark Twain. He said, don't let school interfere with your education. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And any quote that you can't figure out where it's from, just attribute it to Mark Twain and you'll be safe. <laughs> <laughs> what kinds of work did you do before you found your calling? Well, you know, I did grow up in a pure German home. German's my first language. And we did work. And ever since I was a kid, I worked paper route. I cooked at a local hamburger restaurant. I drove a truck, uh, sold door to door. So I did a lot of stuff. I, I guess my parents put a real work ethic into me. So I've always bounced around from job to job. But after college, I went to grad school and then I got involved in the world of nonprofit. And I kind of found my calling pretty early. By the time I was 30, I was, um, cranking in my calling and and um, really enjoying my career how would you define your calling 
Well, my calling, uh, I kind of had a radical change in college from being very self-centered as a self-centered partier. And I grew up in the 60s, so if any of you are children of the 60s, you know what that means. In fact, I just got the AARP magazine. (laughs) (laughs) You guys have that up in Canada? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, the the cover this month is... uh, the Summer of Love, 1967. <laughs> and I remember it well, The Summer of Love. And it's a super psychedelic cover. And it just, it's a throwback to The Summer of Love, uh, 67. So I grew up in the drug era. I was a hippie. I was into drugs. But when I, when I, when I went away to college, I kind of had a, a moment of clarity and I, and I changed direction and I began to get very involved in, uh, trying to help make the world a better place. And that's how I got into the nonprofit sector. I decided not to be selfish and to serve myself and to get rich, but to try to help people that are less fortunate than I am. And that's what got me into the whole nonprofit world. Hmm. Did you go to Woodstock? I tried to. <laughs> we were on the road there in my in my uh, Volkswagen bus. <laughs> We got as far as Charlotte, and we were smoking dope, and we got so stoned, we uh, checked into a motel and had our own little Woodstock. So we never made it. I'm I'm disappointed to this day that we didn't make it, but we tried. Well, you probably were lucky. I, I, I would say because, uh, you know, I'm also a child of the 60s, and uh, <laughs> I remember making a choice. I didn't want to go there because I said, I don't want to be in that madness and that kind of that many people crushed together. And um, I remember that week and that that period very clearly. I ended up going to Central Park and and hearing Al Cooper live. You remember Al Cooper? Oh yes, of course. Yeah, he was that. And he where you know, he played for Dylan for a while. Um, yeah, yeah well, that was... you know, Woodstock was a mess. It really was. It was a rainy, muddy mess. And even though there's an aura to the idea of people that did go said, said it was pretty well a mess, pretty miserable. Yeah, I I, I, I felt that going in. So I said, no, nope, not for me. But um, okay, so that's great. We have that in common. Children of the 60s and part of the drug culture. <laughs> yes. Now, how did you become a successful author, speaker, and leadership authority? Well, um, you know, it's interesting. I I became involved in leadership because I, in as a thirty year old, uh, we actually moved overseas. We were living in Vienna, Austria, my wife and I, and uh, we had two children, and then then two more were born while we were over there, and uh, we were working in a really exciting project. But I had a miserable boss. I had a, the founder of our organization was a typical founder, control freak. And uh, that's where I first <laughs> saw how bad leadership can really make life miserable for a lot of people. And, and in fact, this guy was so bad, such a control freak. And this is what happens to people that start their own companies. As they grow, they can't let go and let, let other people help run them. Many of them fall into the founder's trap. It became so bad, I finally we finally left Europe and moved back to the States because I, 
I couldn't respect the guy. I couldn't work for him uh, because he wouldn't share uh, authority. He wouldn't let, even though he asked me to help run the place, he wouldn't give me any authority at all. He had to make all the decisions. And in fact, my book, my bestseller, The Top Ten Mistakes Leaders Make, was sort of born out of that experience. Mm. And that's when I that's when I first got interested in leadership. And then I decided to get my doctorate in the field because I thought, you know, I'm a leader. I'm, I'm I know I'm going to be a leader. I, I want to be a good leader. I don't want to be a leader that life, makes life miserable for other people. So I started writing books on leadership and speaking on it, and that's kind of how my career in leadership got started. Have you uh, rubbed elbows with uh, John Maxwell? Oh yeah, yeah, I sure have. Yes. Yeah. He's endorsed some of my books, and I love his books. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, what obstacles did you have to overcome to achieve the successes that you have? Well, you know, uh, success in life is is a lot of things, and determination is one of them. In fact, the, uh, in my new book, The Top Ten Ways to Be a Great Leader, uh, the D in leadership stands for determination. And you do have to just be determined and, and hang in there and not quit. So obstacles, oh my goodness, I had all kinds of obstacles. Probably some of the most painful obstacles I've had is sabotage from within an organization. You know, the people closest to you can hurt you the most. Mm -hmm. I had a particular high-level gentleman working for me. I was a CEO. He was a COO. And I didn't realize he was um, plotting against me and sabotaging me and stabbing me in the back. He wanted my job. He wanted my board to fire me so he could have my job. It was a mess. That, that was just one of the bit. And then I had another time where uh, my chairman of my board tried to have me fired because of philosophical differences between him and me. And thankfully, my board sided with me and got rid of him. <laughs> so I've had opposition, definitely. I've had, and most of the most painful, discouraging opposition has come from within, from my own board and from some of my employees. Well, it would be painful because uh, you, you know, you have an emotional investment in these people. You're not just working with them. Uh, what would you say was your biggest personal challenge and victory? You know, about five years ago, I decided I needed to uh, quit being a CEO. I'd lost my passion, but it was very difficult. And, and a lot of people get stuck in that place where they they don't um, realize, uh, they, they run out of gas, they run out of passion, they plateau, but it's hard to leave and to let go, especially if you're well compensated. And I always say leaders do more damage by staying too long than by leaving too soon. And, and I stayed too long because I had a, you know, I call it all. You can stay in a job for all the wrong reasons. They all start with P, the paycheck, the prestige, the power, the prominence the perks. And I had all those. And yet I was, my heart wasn't in it anymore. I lost my passion. So I think the hardest thing I did was to finally come to grips with that and say, you know, Hans, you're not being fair to yourself and you're not being fair to your people. You need to go ahead and resign and move on and follow your heart. So that was probably the biggest challenge that I faced later in my career. And the victory is I did it. I, when I was 60 years old, I walked away from that 
position and launched uh, out on my own. And now I can honestly say I do what I love and I love what I do. Wow, that is, that's a great story. Why is vulnerability crucial to strong leadership today? Well, the power of vulnerability. You know, I was talking to a CEO the other day, and this is an interesting story. He, he, one of his staff came up to him and said, you know, you're always so vulnerable. Aren't you afraid that people aren't going to respect you because you're admitting all your faults? And he said to her, well, do you not respect me? And she said, oh, I respect you more than anybody I've ever worked for because you admit <laughs> your faults. <laughs> well, that's kind of the point right there. You know, the power of vulnerability is per not pretending to be perfect and showing the chinks in your armor. And there's a great power in that because it's true and real because nobody's perfect. So we shouldn't pretend to be uh, perfect and have our act together because nobody does. We're, we're all messed up. And, and really the thing is to uh, what people want to see is how do you get up when you fall down? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the power of it is that especially if you're doing a good job and they see your vulnerability, then it empowers them. They feel he's human like me. If he's doing such a wonderful job, I can too. Yes, because I'm human too. Exactly. And, exactly. and I've been doing a lot of work with millennials. And I'll tell you, in fact, that's why the A, the book, and the A in leadership stands for accessibility and vulnerability. And those are two things that millennials demand of their leaders and their bosses. You have to be accessible, not hiding out in the corner office. Uh, accessible and vulnerable. And, and my younger staff, I remember one time I had a pizza party and I asked them, I invited everybody under 35 years of age to uh, have pizza with me, the boss, and I just wanted to pick their brains about the good, the bad, and the ugly. What's great about working here? What's not so great about working here? And, and what could we do to improve? Because I was very aware that the millennials are coming on strong into our workforce. They're a bigger generation than the boomers. 82 million in North America. And I just, I wanted to create a working environment that millennials would enjoy, not a boomer environment that would sort of choke them. And, and I remember one of the things they said they loved about the office was that the leaders were accessible and vulnerable, that we, we were available. If they wanted to talk to us, we would mingle with them. We'd hang out with them. We'd play with them as well as work shoulder to shoulder. So that's so important, being accessible and vulnerable, especially to the younger generations. Mm -hmm. Hey, that's a, it's a wonderful uh, behavior and attitude to uh, put out into the world, my friend. Now, the second chapter of your book is about emotional intelligence. Define it for us and then give us an example and tell us why it's important. Well, emotional intelligence is what we call EQ. And everybody knows what IQ is. That's your intellect, how smart you are according to your IQ. But EQ is how emotionally strong you are. And one thing I would define emotional intelligence is your ability to understand how you come across to other people with your people skills. EQ, if you can imagine a iceberg, and above the iceberg, the waterline, 
Above the waterline is what I call IQ. Below the waterline is EQ. A lot bigger, a lot more important. And just like when the Titanic, it sunk by what was under the waterline. And I think, uh, Lewis, about some of the people that I fired, all the people that I fired, and I fired some high-level people that were so smart but they lacked emotional intelligence. I remember one lady that I had to fire. People would say, you know, Hans, she's so good at what she does, but I feel like I'm walking on eggshells around her. Well, she lacked EQ. She had blind spots. And so when I hire people and I interview, I ask questions about their emotional intelligence. How do you get along with people? Tell me about their people skills. Tell me about their conflict resolution skills. How do they act when they're in crisis and under great pressure? That's all emotional intelligence. And I want to hire somebody that is emotionally healthy. I don't really care how smart they are. In fact, mm-hmm. my, my assistant and I always used to say, let's hire for attitude and train for skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're probably aware that um, there's, it's pretty recent, there's been a lot of scientific uh, discussion about the fact that the heart literally has, for lack of a better word, its own brain. Hmm. I've not heard that. No, really. I mean, that they, yep, that there's an intelligence that when they say, you know, um, lead with your heart or, you know, uh, be in touch with your heart, be open and express with your heart. To some people, it sounds mushy. It sounds soft. Mm -hmm. But what they're really learning is that there is much more to it than, um, then people realized, and when they talk about emotional intelligence, that that word intelligence literally applies to the heart as well as the brain. Mm, wow. Yeah. I, to- yeah. I totally believe that. That sounds yeah. awesome. It is. It's, it's fascinating stuff. So if you had to choose only one of the 10 qualities of a great leader from your book, which one would it be and why? That's an easy answer. Oh, that's an uh, easy answer. Okay. Yeah, and it's the last chapter. Uh, it's humility, the power of humility. I don't think there's any one trait more important for great leadership than humility. And it's a little counterintuitive, Lewis, because a lot of people, I was just talking to somebody yesterday who was saying, you know, leaders have to be strong. They cannot show weakness because if they're really the man's man, then they are strong. And to show weakness is uh is to lack courage and uh you know some people have this faulty it goes back to that vulnerability thing that's why some leaders aren't vulnerable because i can't show any weakness but i think the opposite is true i know one of the other questions you're going to ask me i'll just answer right now because you (laughs) it's what is your favorite book and uh, now you can't really you know i'd have to say my favorite book's probably the bible you know but uh barring the bible uh, one of my all-time favorite books is the book by Jim Collins, Good to Great. Yeah, I call it. I call it the Red Book. I've got and, it. I've got yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> everybody has it. It's a great book, and if you take the paper cover off, the hardback is red and it's beautiful. Uh, Good to Great. Okay, so we all know Jim Collins studied over fourteen hundred and fifty uh, companies to find which ones went from being good to being great, and sustained it over fifteen years. 
and he and then he analyzed the leaders of those companies and you probably know this but I'll mention it because this is about humility he said those great companies are led by long-term leaders that I call level 5 leaders and level 5 leaders exhibit tremendous humility in fact there's a paradoxical combination of personal strength with humility and I like the fact that even Jim Collins proves that humility is not a weak characteristic for, for weak leaders. It's a great characteristic for the best leaders. So I'd go with humility. Mm. And that's why my last chapter, I talk about the power of humility. I think it's a powerful force. And the opposite, let me just say, is pride. What's the worst characteristic a leader can exhibit? Pride. Pride comes before the fall. And a lot of bad habits that leaders have ooze out of pride. You know, like not knowing how to delegate, being control freaks, being dictators. All that has to do with uh, pride. So humility, that's what it's all about. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I don't disagree with you on this. But what it makes me think of is that uh, these words have been given a bad rap in a way both of them because when humility is when someone sees it as weak they're not really thinking about humility they're thinking about something else they're thinking about insecurity a truly humble person comes from a place of strength of calm you know of knowing who he or she is and pride well I wouldn't call pride is a very positive thing in my eyes, but unbridled ego isn't. So I think when, <laughs> yeah. when you say the person's coming from a place of pride, it's more a sense of being blind and being egotistical. Yes, exactly. Egotistical. Because I think we should take pride in owning the things that we've accomplished and the things we're good at. Totally agree. I'm so proud of my children. I'm proud of my career. I'm proud of what I've accomplished. There you I'm go. I'm proud of books I've written. You're right. You're absolutely right. But, but the pride thing can get in the way when it's all about your ego. Yep. Absolutely. Now, describe the contrast between servant leadership and what you call slave leadership. Yes. Well, uh, it's a perfect segue from pride because what is the opposite of arrogant top-down leadership? And that was what I call servant leadership. And again, it's not weak leadership to me, a servant leader. Here's my definition. When the leader cares more about the good of the team than his or her own enrichment, that's servant leadership. It's what, um, Zig Ziglar used to talk about when he said, you know, if, if I help people get what they want, I'll get what I want. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I don't know if you like sports analogies, but um, <laughs> we have a famous football uh, quarterback here in Denver, uh, Peyton Manning, who retired. Oh, yeah. Was, I yeah. think he's one of the, uh, the Broncos quarterback. And he is, to me, one of the greatest examples of servant leadership. This man is so skilled and gifted as a football quarterback, and yet... They say nobody worked harder and was more humble on the team than Peyton Manning. And he knew the principle of servant leadership. I cannot make one score unless we're all working together as a team. 
Mm-hmm. And see, that's to me servant leadership. It takes every member of the team is of equal value. You know, I may be the quarterback, and I was a CEO. I was a quarterback for 20 years of a big company. Uh, but I realized just because I happen to be in that spot doesn't mean I'm the most important person. And oftentimes, uh, the quarterback is not, you know, other people are making much bigger scores than the CEO is, and that's okay because we're a team, and that's servant leadership. We're helping, everybody's helping everybody score. Mm-hmm. Listen, I'm, I'm in network marketing, and that concept is uh, front and center in network marketing. You can't build a network marketing empire without that attitude because it's about supporting the members of your team. That's how you end up mm-hmm. making money. That's right. My, my mm-hmm. wife, is, uh, her career is in network marketing, so I'm, I hear you 100%. Oh, wonderful. Which company is she with? Juice Plus. Oh, yeah. I know it well. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. She's a, national, she's a national marketing director with the company, and uh, she, we've been taking the product for 16 years, and uh, we love it. But you're right, uh, and I work with her about 25% of my time is uh, helping her in her business, and uh, it's all about helping other people be successful, absolutely. Exactly. Now, please respond to Machiavelli's provocative question, is it better to be loved or feared? I would say it's better to be loved. I'm not surprised you say that. I know uh, in my in my book, the you've you've got a copy of it there, and and in one of the chapters, I I talk about what are the reasons why people follow you, and there's like six different reasons from bad to good. The worst reason people follow you is because they have to, because you're the boss. Uh, the best reason, and then I have various variations down the list, you know, they inspire me. But the best reason people follow me is because I, they inspire me and I trust them and I want to go where they're going. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and on the other, there's nothing wrong with the word love in leadership. And there's nothing wrong with a leader telling his people, I love you. You know, so I, I wouldn't agree with Machiavelli, although I know a lot of people think that they lead, they want to lead by intimidation. And I guess if you're a general and you're in a war, you know, maybe, maybe you need more intimidation, uh, fear than you need love. But in, in most occupations, I think love rules. Hmm. I didn't think I was going to go here, but it is related. Do you watch Game of Thrones? No, I don't. Sorry. I must be the only person in North America that doesn't, but no, I don't. No, I'm sure you're not the only one. Uh, I know it's huge, and I hear about it all the time, and it's kind of like, yeah, but I don't. You know, I ignored it for six seasons. I just said, I'm not going to get into that. And then I started watching it. And it's absolutely brilliant, because it just finished the seventh season, and it's an a, an amazing what i realized after watching it it's the modern day equivalent of greek mythology you know i would say it's on the level of the iliad or the odyssey and wow. and yeah and the beauty of it is that it's a very insightful study 
of power, both good and bad, leadership that's completely evil, and leadership that has compassion behind it. It's mm. fascinating. And uh, I mean, I, I won't go on because if I get started, it'll be the whole interview. Uh, <laughs> but I will leave. It's great, for the, it's great for the people that are into it, but for everybody else, it's like flat. But I, I probably will circle around to it eventually. Um, my wife and I have just sort of backed off of TV uh, to spend more time uh, becoming more successful in our work. But uh, – we have our favorite TV shows, so I might cycle back around to that. Yeah, it's 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 quite something, and uh, I love the fact that the most diplomatic, compassionate, and strongest character in the entire series is played by Peter Dinklage, and the character's a dwarf. Mm-hmm. Yep. The dwarf, the dwarf is literally the giant in the. In I the, know the actor. That's wonderful. Yeah, he's he's quite amazing. Anyway. So how do you help millennials to become better leaders? Well, um, I think the, the key is mentoring and not, uh, I, tr I try to tell them, I'm actually working on a new book with a millennial on how boomers and millennials can work well together. So he's teaching me a lot. Uh, the way, uh, the first way you help millennials is don't expect them to be the kind of leaders that boomers are. They view us as workaholics. They view us as failed in our marriages because of the massive divorce rate of baby boomers. And they view us as materialistic. And so they don't want to be like us. And fine, you know, I just say, I don't want to make you like me. So the first thing you have to realize is don't expect them to lead the way you lead. One thing I've learned about millennials is they don't draw a line, a strong line between work and family and play. You know, we, we go to work. Well, they don't go to work. They like to work at home or on the road or on the go. And uh, they don't like rigid time schedules. You know, i got to be at the office at 8 o'clock. So I just think you, the, the best way to um, help millennials become better leaders is to study them and to meet them on their terms. I would say that's really important. Don't try to make them to be like our generation if you're older. But, uh, but mentor them. I guess I'll say the most important thing is mentor them. And to me, mentoring is very organic. It's what I'm doing with my 30-year-old millennial friend that we're writing a book together. We, we met on an airplane going to China a couple of years ago, and we just struck off a great friendship. And, and I mentor him, but he, he also mentors me in the ways of millennials. Mm. I love the characteristics you describe because uh, – Getting back to network marketing, so many millennials are finding their way into it and they're rocking it. They're just crushing it. Yeah, that's true. And through social media primarily. Right? Absolutely. And I know the company I'm with, uh, there are set quite a number of them who are already financially independent, won't have to work again ever if they don't want to. And, and they're incredibly inspiring young people. Because uh, interestingly enough, they're not uh, frivolous. They're not, oh, I have a lot of money so I can be reckless. No, it's not that at all. They're actually mm. setting great examples for others to uh, to follow. That's wonderful. Yeah. So what has been one of your greatest leadership failures? <laughs> 
I think uh, probably I actually talk about it in the in the last chapter of the book, Top Ten Ways to Be a Great Leader in, in the Power of Humility. I think I was a very arrogant young leader when I became a leader in my 30s. Um, it was all about me. It was all about my career. It was all about Hans and what he's able to do. And I actually had a revolt against my leadership by my team. And this was in my mid-30s. And I, I still look back at this as one of my greatest failures. And, and they ejected me and said, we're not going to, we're going to find another leader. You're not going to be our leader anymore. <laughs> I'm like, what? Why? <laughs> well, they could do that. And they did do that. And I asked when I, once I picked up the pieces and licked up, licked, licked my wounds, I said, why? And they said, you don't care about us. It's all about you and your agenda and getting your things done. You're very smart. You're very gifted. You're, you've already written a book and you're just in your early thirties, but you don't care about us. And that's, that was my great failure to realize it was all about me. And, and to me, you have to make the conversion from me to we. And that's, that's what I learned through that bitter mistake. It's, is, you know, it's the old saying. I think Maxwell says it a lot. I don't know who originated it, but it, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And I didn't care. It was just about my career. And people can tell that. That's why people will hop from company to company if they don't really care about the company or the team. They're just on this stairway to get more and more money and higher positions. And that's, that's again, self-serving kind of leadership. Well, what's wonderful is that right now, as you speak, you're uh, exhibiting the humility of uh, and the vulnerability to admit that and be aware of it and and acknowledge and grow from it and um regarding that that wonderful quote uh i think it was originally attributed to maya angelou ah yes i love maya angelou uh -huh. yes i i use some of her quotes in my speaking yes mm -hmm. now why did you write this particular book now in your career i mean top 10 ways to be a great leader well my best seller is top 10 mistakes leaders make and that this i decided to write the other side of the coin because that book is about what to stop doing uh peter drucker the famous management guru said you know a lot of leaders i see don't need to learn what to start doing they need to learn what to stop doing <laughs> so that book was about mistakes this is the other side of the coin if you're in new into leadership especially a young leader or new into leadership and a lot of people in network marketing uh, once they become successful for the first time they're leaders and they're leading a team i partly had those people in mind as i wrote this book and so all of a sudden, it's not about me anymore, but it's about we. So I decided to write about the 10 essential skills every new leader really needs to fo focus on and master. Also, this book is after 30 years in leadership. I think it's packed full of wisdom now looking back after all these years and getting my doctorate in the field of leadership. I, I asked myself the question, what are the 10 most essential characteristics that every leader needs to pay attention to. So that's why I wrote this book right now. And I think um, it's a book that's extremely important in our world today right now. You know, um, 
Well, thanks. Oh, yeah. I mean, given, you know, we won't get into it, but the climate out there is pretty strange. <laughs> yeah, let's not get into it. <laughs> but it's it's pretty crazy, yeah. So my, my passion, Lewis, is just to to do what I can to make good leaders great leaders. And, That's fantastic. Uh, you know. So where do you see yourself in five years, Hans? You know, I I really am doing what I love, and I love what I'm doing. So I want to continue to influence leaders. So five years from now, I hope I'm still uh, enjoying uh, what I'm enjoying now, which is I do a lot of speaking on leadership and teaching and uh, writing. So I want to just keep doing that. I want to keep influencing and helping leaders especially those that maybe struggle with their leadership or they're afraid because they just got into leadership. So if I can help leaders lead better five years from now, I'll be a happy man. Beautiful. And I can hear that passion in your voice. I, I know you're going to continue doing it because I can't imagine you as the kind of person who um, would just stop because if if you stopped, your whole sense of purpose would disappear and you'd be back in the game in a flash. Yeah, I don't believe in retirement, so I, I will just keep working. Uh, I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett, and uh, he's, to me, a great model. You just keep going, you know? You just um, keep going. How about Harvey? How about Harvey McKay? Yes, another great one. And Clint Eastwood is another one. He's in oh, oh my. cranking out movies. So, you know, people that just stop and retire, they they usually die, you know. So I, I and I just have to be making an impact. And one of my five strengths and strengths finders is significance. I just have to be doing things that are significant. So I can't just lay on the beach and play golf. I have to be doing stuff that's making an impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing in the world, what would it be? <laughs> no more hurricanes. <laughs> nah, that's not, that's not, because that's, that, that's just the. <laughs> I'm very brokenhearted about all the suffering people down in Texas this week. By the time this is broadcast, it'll probably be old news, but um, I, uh, I, I don't know. Um, I'm a realist and a pragmatic. If I could wave my wand and change one thing in the world, I guess I would go with the Beatles. All we are saying is give peace a chance, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you talk about being a realist. And I think what I hear underneath that is, well, realistically, that's not going to happen. But you know what? In the past five or ten years, I've learned to challenge that word realistic. What does it mean? It usually means something that we place a, a limited vision on. And what I'm seeing is that I think that among marketers, and I don't mean the average marketer, people at the top of the food chain have the power and the purpose right now to save the world. Hmm. I'm thinking of people like Joe Polish. Familiar with him? No, I'm not. Well, I think you'll find his work very inspiring. And uh, you can look him up under the Genius Network. The Genius Network. And he also has a podcast called I Love Marketing. But 
Hmm. I'm not talking about, okay, how do we sell more widgets? That's not what I'm talking about. It's a whole worldview that believes in abundance, believes in supporting people, believes in compassion, and believes in the possibility for us to actually bring about a world that many people think is just a fantasy. Hmm. I was listening to one of his podcasts this morning, and it was just, I was off the ground after I listened to it. <laughs> so I had asked you about your favorite book, and, and my storytellers hear me mention this book in almost every podcast. It is relevant here because you mentioned that you see yourself as a futurist. So are you familiar with Peter Diamandis? No, I'm not. A book I think you will absolutely love is called Bold. How to Go Big, Create Wealth, and Impact the World. Peter, wow. Diam Peter Diamandis and Stephen Cutler. Diamandis actually has a university in California called Singularity University, working in close relationship with a guy named um, uh, his name's, last name is Kurz, Kurzweil. He wrote the book called The Singularity is Near. And he's also working with people like Richard Branson, Elon Musk. And it's all about 10x thinking and how digital technology, when we harness it correctly, will give us the paradise on earth that people talk about. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> It really is. I'll look for that book, Bold. That sounds like something I'd like to read. And you know what? I would highly recommend getting it as, um, oh, it's Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil wrote The Singularity is Near. But I would recommend getting Bold as an audio book. Um, I recommend it to my listeners all the time. They can get it probably for free. They can get it for free on uh, Audible if they go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. And uh, as an audio book, it's totally engaging and you could listen to it in your car. Yeah, I'll do that. What, is, sure. your, what is your favorite quote, my friend? I think I already gave you my favorite quote. People don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. Okay. And we'll, we'll attribute that to Maya Angelou. I'll confirm okay. it with my friend Google. All right. <laughs> that doesn't always work. <laughs> but you can try. It works. It works a lot of times. <laughs> I know, but I, having been a, even with this latest book, uh, my publisher David C. Cook, um, it's amazing how many quotes they found that I had not attributed to the original source. Because people get attributed, you know, like Maxwell gets attributed to a lot of quotes that he got somewhere else, or you know, it's it's an interesting journey sometimes to dig down deep to find the author and the original. But anyway, that doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how can people contact you, Hans? Yeah, well, my books are all available on wherever books are sold online. Just go to Hans, just search for Hans Finzel, H-A-N-S-F-I-N-Z-E-L. And my website is the best way to find me, HansFinzel.com, H-A-N-S, F like Frank, I-N-Z like Zebra, E-L, HansFinzel.com. And you can contact me directly. I answer all my uh, own emails. So I'd love to hear from your listeners. 
And uh, who would be your ideal? Do you take on clients now? Who would be your ideal? Yes, client? I do. Good. Well, I take on client. I do a lot of speaking, so I love doing speaking for leadership teams. Um, uh, so I do a lot of leadership speaking for events and seminars and things like that. And then I take on coaching of C-level leaders, CEOs, COOs, if people just maybe need some advice or, you know, sometimes I'll do it just for a few months just to help them work through some thorny problems that they're facing. So that, mm. those are some of the things I do. Mm. And I have 75 podcasts on my um, website, different topics of leadership. If you're interested and you can look there and listen to stuff that would interest you, like I have several about four on emotional intelligence that are really good. I interview some other people, and yeah, so I've, I've got a wealth of information there at hansfinzel.com. Beautiful. You know, I meant to ask you before, where did you get your doctorate? At Fuller School of Intercultural Studies, Pasadena, California. Pasadena. Yep. Okay. Did you write a thesis on leadership? I sure did. What was, what was the topic? something pages. Wow. Organizational culture, a model for discerning organizational culture. Mm. Uh, yeah, back uh, that doctorate I did almost thirty years ago. So, but back then, organizational culture was kind of a new field, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot about organizational culture. How long did it take you to complete? It was a two-year program, so uh -huh. one year of classes and then one year of dissertation. Right. Right. Well, my friend, any final words for our storytellers? I would just say keep, if you're in any kind, oh, you never uh, asked me, by the way, one of your questions was how do I define leadership? So let me finish with that. I define leadership with one word, the word influence. So if you ah. are, it's not just a position, it's influence. Parents are leaders. Teachers are leaders. If you are in a position of influencing other people, than you are in leadership. And I would say work at taking your leadership to the next level. Work at improving your leadership. A lot of people in leadership don't realize it's a it's some a skill to be developed just like a doctor or a surgeon or an airline pilot or a school teacher. You need continuing education. That's why you should read my books. <laughs> That's my mm. final word. Wow. You talked about improvement. And you made me think of another quote. The biggest room in the world is the room for improvement. <laughs> I like that. That's and good. that and that's Harvey McKay. I like it. Yeah. I can't thank you enough. It's been engaging. Uh you offered a lot of value here. And what's always interesting to me is besides the what of uh, what a person contributes to the show. It's the how. And mm. I sense the richness of it was not only in the content, but in your passion for it and the humility that I can hear in your tone of voice. Well, thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. It's been you. a joy. It's been a delight to talk with you. Wonderful. And hey, we might be doing it again. Awesome. It'd be great. I'd love it. Thanks again, Hans. 
And, of course, thank you, storytellers, once again for tuning in and spending time today with me and Hans Finzel. I think you will agree that Hans enriched us today. Pay this forward. Let people know that they can hear this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. Definitely go to that website and claim the free gift that I've created for you, a downloadable free ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Today you heard a lot of excitement and passion about books. Definitely visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. Take advantage of the generous offer from Audible for a free audiobook of your choice, choosing from more than 120,000 titles and to an entire month free of all of Audible's service. Did you know that the three most dangerous words in the English language are, I know that? We say them all the time. We understand things in our heads. So someone says, you know, if you do this, this is going to happen. You go, I know, I know. And yet, do you know? The thing is, as a mentor of mine pointed out, we don't really know something until we experience it, until we feel the impact of it in our bodies and in our hearts, our emotions. One of those areas that we may often say, I know that, is the area of our self-talk. We know, we think we know, what it means when we hear, everything is a story, and the language I speak to myself is creating a story that becomes my reality. I know that. I know that. Really. I'm going to offer you the opportunity to experience what that means and how powerful and how transformative and liberating it can be. Think of an area in your life, a story that you may tell yourself time and time again that limits you. Some, I can't do that story, for instance. Reach out to me at Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com or at Lose Club, L O U S C L U B, at gmail.com. I will give you a 30 minute free consultation focusing on that limiting story, and you will come out of that session changing the language that you use, feeling the difference, and being able to move to another level in your life. Now, I cannot offer this to everyone who reaches out, but this week I'm offering it to the first three people who request it. So don't hesitate. Take action now. Reach out to me at lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com or loseclub, L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B, at gmail.com for your free 
30-minute consultation that we will do on Zoom or Skype. Now, Hans did speak about many, many inspiring things. He gave you so many nuggets to um, think about and to take action on. The one that stands out for me the most that I would like you to focus on for next week is the topic of vulnerability. Look inside yourself. Is there some area of your life where you are not allowing your vulnerability to show, where you feel defensive, that people might see a flaw, they might sense a weakness? Examine that and then take the step, the courageous step, to open up and reveal everything. Take the step to be vulnerable. Begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.